0: Well, good morning, well, this is our last two service Sunday, so that means things in the valley are starting to wind down a bit, and it's kind of crazy for us over the summer if you live here, like there's just so much going on because it's nice, you want to get out and you want to mountain bike or river raft or paddle board or hike, then you know, you got your home, it's the only time you can work in the yard, it's the only time you can work on the outside of your house. And it gets crazy. And when I try to explain this to my friends, especially outside the valley, I say, well, it's kind of like going down a, a, a class five rapids without a guide because you're getting tossed about, you don't have a lot of control, you don't know what's ahead, but it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And I use that analogy because I've done that before. I've done the... Rural Gorge about half a dozen times, um, river rafting. is one of my favorite spots to go to. And uh, I've gone down it um, with grown men in a boat, and I've gone down it when they literally just opened it that day because the river was low enough in order to be safe in a boat full of 12-year-old girls. And the 12-year-old girls did a whole lot better than the grown men, let me tell you. So, so we were... Because we were, it, when I was in a boat full of, full of men, we're going down and we're kind of in the first section and it, it's a pretty long rapid and I'm in the front right side of the boat and as we're going down, we hit these rapids pretty hard. And then I started, I looked back to the back left corner and realized that Charlie was no longer sitting in the raft, but he had literally, I don't even know how this happened. He bounced up straight out of the raft, the raft left and he landed on a rock like this. <laughs> so he's literally just sitting in the middle of the river on a rock. And the absurdity of that kind of came to me. I looked back again and realized, well, we don't have a guide either. He fell out. So, (laughs) yeah, there's there's five of us, five grown men in a raft, freaking out. Because what's happening is all five of us are barking orders. And we're not even listening to our own orders. We're basically just screaming and just paddling as fast as we can. And that's what's going on. And by the grace of God, we actually make it through the rest of the rapids. And when they got the guide back in the boat, he was like... Man, y'all did a really good job. And we were really quiet. Because it's one of those instances where we didn't want to let on that we were actually screaming like little girls and just paddling frantically. But it's one of those things is when you do that adventure together, it kind of brings you together. And I was having breakfast with a friend this week, and he was talking about an adventure he was on and how it was tough, it was grueling. But it's the kind of thing that if you do together, it just brings you together. And we all know that, and we all experience that, but it kind of brings home the point of why we need a good group of people around us. Because we need a good group of group of people around us, even in the simple things. Because you know what, you're going to lose your guide every now and then. So, how much more important is it to have a good fellowship around us in the deep, meaningful things of life? And that's what we're going to look at this morning: is fellowship. And we're kind of at a A unique intersection this morning, as we've been kind of every month, once a month, going through our Headwater series, we've been looking at different disciplines, different spiritual practices that Jesus used and and that we should do to grow our faith, like prayer, Bible study, fasting. And so today we're talking about fellowship. But we've also been doing our foundation series, where we've been looking at the book of Acts and what we can learn from the early church. And we're at an intersection today because we're in a section about fellowship. So all this careful planning that Scott and I do to to put our messages together, we accidentally hit this. So it's good. It means it's divinely appointed that we talk about fellowship this morning because it wasn't from our plan. But to start off with, I want to get a good definition of fellowship. If we look in the uh, Bible, it says that it's a friendly relationship or companionship. And even it says communion as between members of the same church. But I don't think that really gets to the heart of what we want to discuss So Renovari, which is an organization out of Denver that commits itself to spiritual practices and disciplines, they define fellowship as this. It says, Engaging with other disciples in the common activities of worship, study, prayer, celebration, and service, which sustain our life together and enlarge our capacity to experience more of God. I like that definition a whole lot better when it comes to fellowship. Because I think it's important to have a unique distinction on what fellowship is because we have various groups in our lives. We have family, can't do much with that. We love them, we tolerate them, we put up with them, and we, we spend time with them. We also have our friends, and usually we choose those. Usually their friends are based upon common activities or likes, and we may enjoy our time together, but we may not have those deep, meaningful conversations about God or struggles with our friends. Then we kind of have our community, and that can be our neighbors, our coworkers, church, just a group of people that comes together. And we can worship, we can sing, like this morning we can actually hear God's word together, but that still doesn't mean we're going deeper with each other in the meaningful things of life. And that's where fellowship comes in. Why we need a good fellowship, to get people around you, study God's word, pray, celebrate, and live life together in Christ. It's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, 20, which is where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. We're just not getting together to fish or golf or grab coffee. We're getting together in Christ for Christ. Fellowship is so important that we see these verses from Paul quite frequently throughout the New Testament. In Romans twelve four, where he just talked about not conforming to the world but transforming our lives because that's our spiritual act of worship, in verse 4 he says, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. He goes on in Ephesians 4:15. He says the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. What Paul is telling us in these verses is that we are at our best in fellowship, we are made to commune and function in Christ with each other, not individually. So that's what we want to look at this morning, using the backdrop of Acts two forty-two through forty-seven to understand what it truly means to live and be in fellowship. So the first part of this unfolding of fellowship is the devotion they had to one another, or how they were devoted to one another, and this is in Acts forty-two through forty-four. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, sharing meals together in prayer, and because of that, they had all things in common. This is literally the understanding of what it means to live. Life together. They weren't just neighbors or casual acquaintances or people who sat next to each other in church. They were fully devoted to one another. They went to each other's house and prayed. They went to the temple and worship. And because of that, they had all things in common. And it's important to note they didn't come together because they had all things in common. They had all things in common because they came together in Christ for fellowship. We see something similar in Hebrews 10 24 and 25 about this urgency of fellowship. The writer here says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love, remember that word, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That phrase stir up means to incite, to inspire, to to kind of drastically and dramatically get people going. This is a deep motivation to do something more meaningful, to raise up those around you for something greater than what the, we're living on our own, the life that we can live on our own. But let's be honest for a moment. That sounds good on paper, doesn't it? We all want that on some level. I want fellowship. But I also like my private time, don't I? I could probably live in a cave for several weeks and be perfectly fine. But we need fellowship. Fellowship. But we make those excuses like, I don't want to go over to so-and-so's house. I don't want to go over there for dinner. I just want to sit and relax. I just want to sit and and be by myself. Because we're basically selfish on on a certain level. We're self-seeking. So it's hard. It's difficult, especially in this day and age, especially after a year of isolation. And we learn how to be on our own. Coming together can be challenging. And especially if you live in this in the valley, as you point out, as Scott likes to point out, is that if, you've, if you're living in this end of the valley, if you're in this end of the valley, you've kind of made it on your own. You are somewhat of a self-made person, you're successful, but that doesn't mean you have fellowship. That doesn't mean that you have what it takes. Because you can be successful, that doesn't mean you have love, that you have joy, that you're happy, or that your life is in any way fulfilled. That's a lie that we've been told from the world, and we constantly believe it because we need one another We cannot make it on our own, so we need to engage with one another. The basic message of Jesus Christ is love God and what? Love. So if we're going to love, we probably need to be around other people, don't we? That's a good start, just to let you know. But we kind of fail on that on a daily basis if we're not around others, if we're not seeking God in all that we do in order to love him so that we can love others. This is why it's challenging. And if we're truly going to do fellowship well, we've got to get devoted to one another so that we can be devoted to one another. I love this quote by psychologist Uri Bronfenbrenner. And I use it a lot at weddings that describes community because he describes true fellowship as this. He says, A group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. I'll read that again. It's a group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. When we start to make irrational decisions for the well-being of those people around us, we're starting to take a step toward fellowship. Because you see, transformation happens in fellowship. If we're going to truly transform our lives, it's only going to happen when there's joy involved and there's a group identity involved. this is like scientific fact. Because if you have a place where you feel safe, happy, loved, and you have a common goal as a group to get to a certain place, that's where transformation happens. It rarely happens in the context of us being by ourselves, of of us being alone, which is why we got to start being devoted to one another. The second part of this passage we can learn from the early church is that they were very, very intentional. And we read this in verses 45 and 46. And it says, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, if you're like me, you're having a hard time getting over. They sold all their possessions and gave them away. I mean, I know y'all are, are very generous people here, but that's a big ask, isn't it? That's hard to understand or comprehend, but we do understand it on a certain level. Because if we have someone in need, if we have a family or friend or someone we care deeply for, we will probably do whatever it takes to help them out. Because we're in deep fellowship. We don't sell all we have for casual acquaintances. We, we do that, those drastic steps, for those that we care for the most. And that is a deep intentionality. So if we're going to be intentional with everything, with, with our stuff, just like they were in the first church, with their money, with their meals, What does that mean for us in this valley? I think there's something that we can all do, because if you're here, you probably like to hike, you like to mountain bike, you like to river raft, and you like to paddleboard, and I guarantee you like to eat. What if you just invited someone into those activities? What if you're intentional about bringing others along when you did that? What a difference would that make in transforming their lives and possibly even their own life? If we're going to live intentionally for others. Because of one of the main reasons for this intentionality comes from Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. And, and James 5. And in these verses in, in Hebrews we read, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In James 5, we read something similar where it says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We have to be intentional enough with community, with one another, to see when our friends are starting to wander, when they're starting to drift. No one gets to the edge quickly. No one gets to the edge of the cliff quickly. It's usually a series of events or circumstances that takes them there. But if we don't know their heart, we don't know their struggles, we don't know how they process things, then all we see is them at the cliff and go, how did they get there? But when we're intentional, when we're digging into their lives, when we're starting to see them wander, we have the ability to bring them back to correct them, to show them the path they've strayed from. And that's why it's important Because there's going to be times when we need to lift up our brother and sister in Christ. There's going to be times where we need to be lifted up in Christ. And more than that, we need to be intentional enough to know when someone needs to be lifted up, even when they cannot ask. So there's this wonderful story in Mark 2, 1 through 5, that really shows this. And you can write this passage down. It should be on your notes. And I'm just going to kind of walk through this story with you. But it's the story of a paralytic man. This is a man who doesn't have much to give. He kind of comes as he is because he doesn't have much to do. He lives most of his life on a two-by-six mat where he begs for food or begs for money. And sitting on this mat, even when he begs for money, he has to hope that one of his friends come by and gets the money and go, goes and gets the food or the drink that he needs. He's completely reliant upon them. And even with that bowl of money out, even if someone comes by and steals it, there's nothing he can do. He can't walk. He can't move. He just basically comes as is. But there's something remarkable about this person on the mat as he has friends that really, really care for him. They really care about his well-being. He has fellowship, and they'll do whatever they can for him, even though he has nothing really tangible to give in return. And this all comes to a head because one day this Rabbi, this teacher named Jesus is coming to town. And the, para- the paralytic man's, which we're going to call Stan from now on because it beats saying paralytic man. So Stan, his friends get together and go, Jesus is coming to town. I've heard about his miracles. I've heard about his healings. I bet if we get Stan to Jesus, Jesus could heal Stan. And they're like, that's it. That settles it. We're going to come by and pick you up, Stan, because they have to pick him up in the morning, and we're going to go see Jesus. So that's what they do. His friends all excited the next morning come, and they grab Stan. They pick him up, and they head to the house where Jesus would be teaching. But when they get there, something's happening. The house is packed. There's people literally flowing out of the house in a standing room-only environment, and this was something that Stan's friends had encountered. They were so excited to get Stan to see Jesus, they forgot that everyone else in town wanted to see Jesus, too. And so they didn't know what to do. But I can probably imagine Stan was just like, it's okay, guys, you tried, I appreciate it, you know, that it was a good effort. But Stan had friends who would implement irrational decisions for the better of their members. He had friends that wouldn't take No. So his friends sit around and go, okay, what can we do? I mean, we, we can just walk through the door, can't we? There's enough room for that. And they're like, no, you can't. I mean, there's no way to get in the, in the door. We can't do that. Probably another friend's like, well, we can just body surf Stan across the top of everyone and get him to Jesus, can't we? And pretty sure Stan went, no, that's a hard no. I'm not body surfing on anybody. But then we all have that one friend, don't we? Dude, if we just tear open the roof, I bet we could drop Stan right down th- below. Like, that's crazy. But then they started thinking about it and went, hmm, that might be the only option. Now, something you have to understand, there's two things you understand about this time period. And the first off is the houses. And the houses, they basically, they had a flat roof like a sun deck on top, and they had outside stairs to get to the top. So it wouldn't have been an issue to get stand to the top of the roof. And the roof was made out of straw and, and uh, hay and mud, so it was easily taken apart and easily fixed. So they weren't complete vandals in and of themselves in this decision. Now, the second thing you need to understand is about teaching. Now, teaching back then was a little different than today. If, it, if someone was teaching in an environment like that, they would be sitting at the front. And then everyone else would kind of either sit on the floor or chairs or stand. And it, it, that's how the environment would look, kind of the opposite of what we're doing today. And if it was a, a, a lot of questions or something deep, this could go on for a long period of time. And this is kind of what the environment is that these guys are walking into. So as you can imagine, Jesus is sitting there talking. Everyone's entranced. There's people on the floor. They're sitting. They're standing everywhere. There's not a lot of room. But then there's like dust that starts falling down. Then little hay. Then little chunks of of mud. The whole roof comes in, this big hole. And they look up, and there's four guys grinning ear to ear like, (laughs) ha, ha. And they grab some ropes, and they lower Stan right into the front of Jesus. Now, if I was Stan, I'd be like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, I did not mean to interrupt like this, because everything is stopped. And there he is at the foot of Jesus. And Jesus, who's like the, the greatest interrupter on the face of the earth. He's not phased by anything. His teaching was interrupted. this this man laying on a mat in front of him, and it says he was remarkable by their faith not his faith their faith his fellowship contributed to his faith in a great and mighty way and then Jesus says this simple line he says son your sins are forgiven now what about Stan I'm pretty sure when he was thinking about being healed he didn't know his sins were going to be brought up in front of a whole crowd of people yet that's what Jesus did He knows no matter how mangled his body is, his heart is far more deformed than our body. And that's where the real healing needs to happen. Son, your sins are forgiven. That's the only word that Jesus speaks at that time. He doesn't tell the man he's going to get better, that he can walk, or he's recovered. He cuts to the quick and goes to the sins. Your sins are forgiven. That's what Jesus spoke, and that's what he needed to hear in order to just get up, pick up his mat, walk out over the rubble, and go home. Because that's what happens when your fellowship has enough faith to do what you cannot do on your own. That's the intentionality of fellowship. Now, the last part of this from Acts is gratitude. And we see this in, in Acts 46 and 47. Which says, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. The key phrase here is that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Because in reality, if we're not thinking about others, we're thinking about ourselves. If we're not grateful, we're focused on what we don't have instead of what we do have. Which means we're completely focusing on self instead of others. Which means we don't have time for others in our lives or to invest in them the way these guys did for Stan. This is what we need to work toward in fellowship, using devotion, intentionality, and gratitude to move community toward deep in fellowship. These roof crashing guys didn't have a friendship where they just got together, played poker, and watched football. They had a deep spiritual friendship. These were the type of people that would fight even when they didn't think there was a battle to win. Because let me put this plainly to you. These friends went and tore open the roof of a house with reckless abandon just to get their friend to Jesus. How willing are we to do the same for our friends, for our fellowship, for those that we love? The deepest concern for their friend was his spiritual well being, a desperate concern for Stan in general, not that he was just physically fit but his whole body. You know, we spend a lot of time in our lives getting people around us for, um, you know, exercise, for diets, for group activities, yet we leave our soul to chance, the most important part of our whole being. You know, I talked a few weeks ago about the team that I built around me to fight my own chronic pain. For 20-plus years, I was trying to do all this on my own, and I had great excuses. Like, no one understands my pain, No one understands what it's like to to, to live in this body. If I do too much, I'm going to hurt myself. And those were all valid excuses. But that's all they were. They were excuses. They were actually keeping me from my better life. So once I started getting a group of people around me, like physical therapists, doctors, massage therapists, workout partners, counselors, and I even started doing yoga, which I'm scared to tell you guys. Because right now, you're all picturing me doing yoga, and it's as ugly as you think. <laughs> but stretching is what I need. It helps me in the process. And I feel better than I have in 10 years because I got a team around me. But what if, just what if I put that type of intentionality into my soul? Imagine if I put that type of effort into the deepest Latin that mattered most to me. What if you had a team, a fellowship that possessed and implemented? an irrational commitment to the well-being of your soul, what difference could that make in your life? How much could you be transformed? If we can start to learn some things about ourselves and move toward God's kingdom and possess and implement an irrational thought for the well-being of those around us, how much could we transform our, not only our own lives but those around us That that is a church that if we did that, that people who walk through those doors would be changed forever. Because we're not trying to impress, we're not trying to do something kind of crazy, we just want to love them and, and tear a roof open so they can see Christ. So as the band comes up, I want to leave you with this one challenge. How are you going to dig deep into fellowship? How are you going to Find those around you and do whatever it takes to become a roof crasher for those that you care for most. This week, I challenge you to find out how you can possess and implement an irrational commitment to the well-being of those around you. So that we can all transform our hearts and live in Christ the way we're told to